What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Racially Speaking, where we have real and honest conversations about race as it's viewed through the lenses of faith, family, and vocation. As always, I'm your host, uh, David, and you are listening to episode lucky number 13. Um, I cannot be more excited for my guest today. We've had this plan for a while now, and man, I'm seriously so excited. She's amazing. Um, I'm joined by my friend, um, and she wears a lot of hats like a lot of people that come on the show, so I'm going to try and just name a bunch off the top of my head, and you insert some more once I have you um, come in here. But I'm joined by Amanda Hedgepath down in the Outer Banks. Um, she is, I think, first and foremost, um, just a mother and a, uh, I almost said father, a mother and wife to a beautiful family down there. She um, is a photographer, mainly families now. She's former wedding photographer, I think, at this point. And also just with a capital A, a huge ally and advocate for everything this podcast is about, um, speaking into racial injustice and just advocating for um, the BIPOC community. So super excited to have her on here. She also is a multiple business owners, I think, at this point, um, runs her nonprofit within the last year. So I'm going to start fumbling over all these titles you have. So Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, yeah, welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you're right about the multiple titles. Sometimes <laughs> I kind of leave one out when I'm talking to people. I'm like, oh yeah, I do this too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, start there. So you have Homeless Looks Like, right? The five wave shop yes. you just um, opened up with with your family, really, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Yeah. Um, so start there. Talk about those couple of things that, you, that have taken up a lot of your time lately. Well, some so you know, I former wedding photographer. It's so weird to say retired wedding photographer because I'm like, um, I'm 36. I'm using <laughs> the word retired. <laughs> but we we did stop shooting weddings literally in the beginning of the pandemic last year. So I do shoot families um, here on the Outer Banks, and I love it. That's my focus, um, my biggest focus. But we also have a nonprofit called Homeless Looks Like, um, which we created uh, because my dad was homeless, and my dad is just uh, top notch workaholic his whole life and he became homeless. So we just wanted to kind of give people clarity about what homelessness really looks like. Cause there's just so, you know, there's so many assumptions made. Um, and so we started this nonprofit and what we do is we do outreach and literally hand stuff out to people or we um, raise money for um, other nonprofits. It, we're, we're literally designated to raise money for other nonprofits. It's kind of a weird okay. uh, status to have, but it's fun. And um, so we do that. And the other thing we just launched was the Five Wave Shop, yes. which is a, our family. We call ourselves the Five Waves. Mm-hmm. We live by the beach. Everything is salt, sand, waves, sunshine. Um, and it's just a gift. I'm like we're drinking out of one of our cups right now. I We nice. have just gifts, Outer Banks gifts, um, funny gifts, <laughs> things that uh, make people laugh. Um, just a little piece of the Outer Banks sent, you know, right to people's houses and we run it as a family. Literally the kids help us pack and ship. And it is so fun to run out of this tiny little house. You're putting them to work. (laughs) I see on social media all the time. And they love it. Oh, they love it. They feel so big. (laughs) That's so cool. I should have bought a mug to prepare for this, but I didn't. So sorry (laughs) about that. A neon mug. That's okay. (laughs) I'm drinking out of a Target mug. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's all good. I should have gotten on that. 
Um, <laughs> man, so yeah, it's so cool to follow you on social media and seeing everything you guys are up to daily, really, with the businesses and yeah, just everything. It looks like you guys honestly have so much fun just every day. We do. You know, when your work has purpose, it's fun. Mm-hmm. So it is a lot of work and we are busy, but um, you can make an income and an impact at the same time. And I think that that is really a gift that we get to do that. So we really are having fun when we're working. <laughs> we're not yeah. burnout working, you know, like we kind of used to do. We, we enjoy it. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, all right. So you, let's just jump in. You alluded to, or you mentioned some of your your past. And I think I always like to start there if I can, because I think, you know, everyone's past and story obviously starts at the beginning, but to give some background on how you got to where you're at now is your personal story growing up, which has also led to, you know, your beautiful family now. So you mentioned your, your dad being homeless at some point in your life. I don't know if that was, um, Lolly had you at any point, but, um, could you talk about maybe some of your and yours and Mike's, your husband's story and just how you ended up to doing something like homeless looks like and just where you all at with how outspoken you guys are? Yeah. Well, to be honest, when it comes to Mike, uh, pretty, (laughs) he is a normal family, normal life. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything with Mike, but, but, uh, but to be completely honest, um, and transparent, he comes from a really small country town. So the fact that Mike came out as kind and liberal and um, open-minded as he did is such a gift because Hmm. he's just so different. So, so yes, he had, he had a pretty easy upbringing, easy life. um, But I'm so proud of him because I wouldn't have expected when I met him and I heard his accent, I was like, oh God, oh no. Like, <laughs> and I hate to say that. I hate to say that because that in itself is a discrimination. But you know what? Sometimes it is what it is. Um, he is a beautifully open-minded human being. We met at ODU. I was bartending. Okay. Uh, he was like the only college boy that said, please, thank you, and treated me with any respect. Yeah, so there's, those con- there's those country upbringing. Right. I was like, well, that's good at least. Um, And then I got to talking and I was like, what a good man, like what a good human in general. And it was really important for me, whoever I ended up with, we have got to have the same values. Like I don't care about having differences of opinion of a lot of things, but human rights, uh, the the things that really matter, like who am I going to raise a child with? I can't raise a child with someone who's going to honestly vote on really different things from me. I just, mm. so anyway, um, I met him, totally fell in love with him. Um, and I, my background is different. I had a rougher childhood. It was okay for a while. And then there was just a lot of alcoholism, um, which, you know, led to when you have an alcoholic in the family, you get kind of obsessed with control because there's such a lack of control in your life. So I got really obsessed with being type A and control and I just went through so much in college and high school. And then I was just a mess in college when I met Mike, uh, a mess. But the the thing was, he was this really well-adjusted guy and I was this big mess, but we had these same values that were really important. And um, so we got together, we got engaged, we got married um, and we we had children together. And when we started to 
talk about these important things. I mean, they're only babies, but you have to think about these serious conversations when your children are babies. Mm. Um, but so we had Cameron and then we had our second daughter, Ellie. And when we had Ellie, that's when my dad fell into homelessness. Um, he okay. lost his job, his car, and his home all in the same month. Mm. Um, wow. And so, you know, we, we'd always cared about the same stuff, but then we moved through that with my dad and that just made us even more compassionate just about not making assumptions about people. Um, so we started the nonprofit about three years ago, but um, it's just really like, it's so, it's crazy. Look at me and what I was and where I came from and where Mike came from. And we've just used anything that we could to turn into good as much as we can. We have no problem speaking up and advocating. Um, and I, I'm really glad to have a partner like that. I'm yeah. really, really grateful yeah. for that because some people don't. Sure. So, yeah. Sounds like you guys established a lot of things from the beginning, which is, I think, a huge help. Yes. Yes? Yeah. You've got, you've got to agree on those important things right mm -hmm. away in the beginning. So with homeless looks like, um, so I'll say, I mean, I think you'll agree. Everyone in general likes to care for the poor, the homeless. Like those are sort of, I think, easy things to say like, oh, I served one a, you know, weekend or maybe monthly somewhere serving the, yeah. I'm doing air quotes again, poor. But I think it sounds like homeless looks like is personal to you, but it's also something that you use to educate people. And you mentioned assumptions. So what maybe yeah. off the top of your head is one or maybe two things that are assumptions that you've come across that people just don't understand that maybe are just looking at it as, oh, these people are poor. I need to give them stuff and I'm yeah. good. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, we so what we do our our um our tagline is um basically creating connection through storytelling. Um, gosh, so, let me give you an example. These two women back to back that we interviewed at a shelter. So both of them were homeless because they were caretakers with people um, for for people in their family who had cancer. And then when the person with cancer died, they lost the home. So they're homeless. So here's this person and they're working around the clock, like working more hours than you can imagine. And they still can't afford housing. And they're doing this good human thing of taking care of somebody who's literally dying and they become homeless. But what people see is, oh, look, at the, they've got an iPhone. Oh, they've got an iPhone, but they're sitting on the street. They can't be hurting that bad. And I'm like, if you were homeless, would you give up your phone? How right. do you want, how do you want those people to get a call back on their job? Right. Like their job interview that they're going, you know, there's so many, I've heard so many little things. Um, just go get a job. Just go get a job. Okay. But the how, oh my gosh, like ever since the eighties, the housing <laughs> crisis mm -hmm. of like things just being so ex one bedroom, a thousand dollars in, in, a, in, a, in a poor or lower socioeconomic neighborhood who could afford that at seven dollars an hour yeah <laughs> like, yeah you know That's a great example. it's so easy right and we cannot make any assumptions until we have asked somebody their story my dad worked more hour i mean up at three and four a.m every day taking care of his car so he could drive to work so he could commute there and he still lost everything because he just couldn't afford life mm -hmm. the, it, life is expensive and how are we supposed to know these things if we don't ask people? Yeah. We we find yeah. out some interesting things um, doing the interviews. It's really incredible. Love it's it. sad. You posted something early on in Homeless Looks Like where you said um, 
you talked about the importance of teaching your kids not to pretend to be homeless or like a hobo or something and how that can be, um, yeah, insensitive yes. and offensive. And that was something very helpful for me to know as a parent of little ones because um, that can just be a small thing that you would just be swept under thing. the rug. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's, you know, that's just funny as being, kids being kids, but how that can be insensitive. So that, that was really helpful. Thank you. I, yeah. I think the thing that I see the most that I do speak up about is people who will have like their hair up in a messy bun or something and they'll say, I look homeless today. Mm. And I'm like, oof. I, and I'm pretty sure at some point in years past, I've probably said something like that. I mean, there's probably no doubt sure. in my mind. I probably said things like that without thinking, wow, that is really offensive while I sit here in my house with the air conditioning on and mm-hmm. food in the fridge and the, you know, bills paid to say, I look homeless just because I'm, I have a messy bun or I'm disheveled yeah. today or something. Um, it's super common. And I, I just want people to stop saying that because, oh, cause once you talk to someone who's homeless and you find out what kind of, what kind of circumstances they've gone through to be where they are today and how, how tragic it actually is. It's just not a nice thing to say. I'm trying to get people to yeah. think about stuff like that, you know? Super helpful. I feel like it brings together what you said with talking to your kids young about these things and, yeah, yeah. advocating for, for homeless. Um, no, that was very, very, yeah. very helpful. Um, all right. Yay. So I want to camp out here and maybe narrow our focus a little bit just because I know that you advocate, as I said at the beginning, for everybody, and it's awesome. So specifically... I mean, why and how are you so un- unapologetic about your advocacy about racial injustice specifically? Because I think that I, I think it's important to um, narrow the focus sometimes and categorize things, um, not to take away from other things, but to focus on on certain things when it when it matters most. So, obviously, yeah. for this podcast, like, why do you not pump the brakes when it comes to racial issues? Because <laughs> um, I think you know some people do oh or, yeah. you know people oh, pick yeah, and choose as yeah you, you know so why why don't you pump the brakes at all right there I th- it's very simple for me this is the concept Great. this is what I'm I'm saying to people who might pump the brakes on it um how could I call anybody who's not white a friend of mine how how do I earn the right to call them a friend if I'm not willing to speak up for them I, I, my, one of my most best friends is black. How could I say that's, that's my best friend. How could I say that if I'm not willing to advocate for her that I don't think I would earn the right to be her friend. So it's, to me, it's that simple. Like, how can we say that, you know, we like this person and they like us and they should trust us, but we're not willing to speak up for them. It really is as simple as like trust. I mean, I, I want people to know I am 100% in their corner and I'm going to prove it. I'm not just going to post a black square once a year or, mm-hmm. or once a, you know, once a, a, what's the word, once a revolution or wh- whatever we're going to call it. Um, once, once and a tragedy. Just like, okay, see it. Once a tragedy. I got your back. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, I, I'm raising this next generation. These three girls, they're small. And yes, they're only three girls in the world in the world of millions of kids that I've got in my home, but oh my gosh, they're going to make a difference. I mean, they have no problem speaking their mind Mm -hmm. um, at all. 
They're very aware of things that I wasn't aware of till I was in my 30s Um, because ultimately I'm raising adults. Um, I just don't think that I earn the right to call anybody, anybody who's non-white, my friend, if I'm not willing to say something when something needs to be said. To me, it's as simple as that. Yes. I love the simplicity when it comes to some of the stuff that seems complicated, maybe, when it's really, it's really not. Maybe it's simple. Maybe it is all simple. It's a simple to me, and I'm an Enneagram one. So to me, it's the right thing to do. There, there's like no discussion. No one could argue differently with me than um, about this. Nobody could talk me out of knowing that the right thing to do is to speak up. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> to me, it's that simple. Okay. So speaking of how, how do you deal with any backlash from those who disagree with your stances? So that can be maybe people in your industry, people closer to you, and or just people, because you have a fairly large following, um, I know at least on social media, maybe, I don't know, people trolling you or something, I don't know. How do you deal with, <laughs> how do you deal with that? Well, the good news is, you know, for the past two years, I've been posting about boundaries, and I think a lot of people okay. <laughs> think twice <laughs> before sending me something. I'm like, boundaries, boundaries. Um, so that's good, but I do get some stuff. And last year, I mean, it was, I, I would get stuff, but... um there's, there's the blessing block. Like, okay. Okay. All mm-hmm. right, Judy or whoever. All right. You, you have your feelings and I just will block them. Um, okay. I also scare, I, I, I also share screenshots with people's screen names and say, Hey, right. this, this is, you know, what people are saying. Um, so that does help filter a little. Cause I think people are feel real brave in DMS. Like I'm going to tell her off. And then with me, that's like, uh-oh. Yeah, I've never <laughs> understood that. that. I'm like, you know, she <laughs> um, has... She'll like, probably share Yeah. I've never understand even people being brave in DM because I'm like, you know, the person has that now. And anyway. Yeah, right. And they feel really... It's it's yeah, ironic well. to feel really safe in the DMs. I'm like, oh, I'm not the one who's going to block your name out. So I know that Susie Sally with like 100,000 followers might be kind enough to block your name out. But I'm just like, here's what this person just said. Um I think there was like a a, a man running for co- um, Congress. His wife messaged me something really messed up, and I just shared it. I was like, um, "This congressman's wife is harassing me. Oh <laughs> I have goodness. no problem sharing it." You know, I, I don't have a problem sharing it. I guess I'm um, I guess I'm sassy in that way, but I don't care. I I, I don't care if somebody would have booked me, and they're not going to book me now because of that. Because okay. doing the right thing overrides everything it it will it wouldn't be worth their money it wouldn't be worth anything to me like doing the right thing is the overriding factor so i'll just i just keep doing it but it takes this is not easy i'm really sensitive person actually um it took me a while to get to this point and i think it took a lot of brene brown who is an amazing researcher who talked about being brave so i was not born this brave (laughs) just fyi (laughs) took me a while to get this point but it's worth it the right thing to do can override anything for me. So I'll say what I got to say. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, you, I can't remember the name. Um, I tried to look it up and I, I couldn't remember, but the name of the, I think it was an online workshop you did with in the creative industry. You have to remind me, but um, I wanted to ask you, like, what are your views on where the creative industry overall is at with advocating for the BIPOC community and how have you kind of helped lead the way in that because I know you took part in and not that that's the only thing you've done by any means but I know that you've been taking 
part in some of those online virtual events. So mm-hmm. I know that was, I'm the king of having wordy questions. So just what's your view of <laughs> the too. creative industry overall and advocating for um, racial injustice or racial justice? I did, um, I did a live video, uh, with my friend, Adrian, her husband, Josh, me and Mike and her sat down and did a live about, uh, raising anti-racist kids. Mm. Um, and they're black and they're just, God, I mean, just some of my favorite people ever. Uh, that was super fun. We did that, that, that is still on my Instagram profile, that live video okay. that we did. And then I also did the Hill Roundtables, which was just this really incredible event that helped people to understand how to be genuinely more inclusive. And it was just, edu- it was a big educational uh, forum that taught a lot of different things. Um, I, I'm happy to see the progress in the industry, but I will say this, just to be honest. Do it. Yeah. Um, I, I am disappointed that uh, I, I'm disappointed that more people are so scared about their bottom line and money and customers and client. They're more, they don't want to offend. And so I think they're afraid to speak up and they, it's either that it's either that or they are inherently racist. It's one or the other, or maybe it's both, Mm. but I, I wish Mm. more people with bigger platforms would speak up more often, more than just last June. Yeah, I do. I really do. I would like to hear more. Um, yeah, I'm like mad about it, but I'm trying to be calm. (laughs) I'm just disappointed. I I would like to, I wish, I wish I would see more, uh, people with, um, bigger platforms really speaking out a little bit more often besides last June. Yeah. I I guess I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Gotcha. So what, um, the Hill, the Hill round tables, um, is the thing I was mentioning before. So are you able to give one or two little nuggets that you took away or that people listening to you and the other, um, facilitators, I guess is the right term took away from that? Cause, um, I, I didn't partake in it, but I saw a lot of the um, post social media stuff about it and leading up to it that you were posting and it sounded fantastic. So could you give us like, I don't know if that's okay, like a snippet of yeah. some things that you felt like were really helpful overall collectively? I, the thing that I think that came up, um, which I talked about, you know, um, from a white person's perspective, mm-hmm. I said, in, I said, I know this does not help anything, but I think that a lot of white people don't speak up because I think that they don't speak up because of shame, like back to the Brene Brown research of shame and vulnerability and all that stuff. I think they don't speak up because of shame and guilt and fear of saying the wrong thing. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, and what we discussed after me saying that was like, but that doesn't... <laughs> that but people of color don't need to hear about our shame and our guilt and stuff. We we really have to get yeah. over that hurdle, that personal problem, and we just need to imperfectly move forward. Um that's what I think a lot of people are stuck on. They don't want they don't want to get attacked for saying the wrong yeah. thing. And they view it as an attack instead of um c- constructive feedback. That's how I think that um people view it because they're very sensitive to it and there's just yeah. a lot of guilt there, which there should be. We should. I tell Mike, I'm like, how do people not, how do white people just not feel like the way that he and I feel is like embarrassed, 
ashamed. Sorry, that's my alarm. We feel um, embarrassed, ashamed, um, and we should, but we got to kind of keep that to ourselves and deal with it because that doesn't, us saying, we feel bad, we feel guilty, yeah. we, we feel so ashamed, that doesn't help anything yeah. in the people of color community at all. I mean, how does that, how's that going to change anything? Right. So we need to get over that and start moving forward and using our voice to influence other white people who need to hear this message. So you might've just answered that this. Was you might've just answered this. So is that, was that kind of your response and the other facilitated response to the white shame component? Cause yeah. I think if you've read, you know, a Brene Brown or any of the, books out there there's almost always a part appropriately so um to give historical context there's always a part about white shame white tears white guilt and how that mm-hmm. actually is super detrimental to people of color especially the black community and i mean literally <laughs> really? you know white tears have led to death um for black uh-huh. people and um i think once people can see, make those little connections to history. Um, I I talk a lot Mm -hmm. about this um, with guests on here, but if people can just understand even little things, like it's not about all this complicated, oh, I have to read a whole history book. It's like, no, understanding how it's all tied to slavery. You know, a lot of people don't want Mm -hmm. to let that be a reality that, you know, we're post-racial. It's like, no, 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 we're not. All this is, we're still all affected by this, especially the black community. Still very connected. Yeah. Yeah. so I see it. I think this is a great place to even elaborate. So I 100% agree. Like the white shame thing, especially in a setting where you're in a discussion group about these issues, can be very debilitating for the group and even harmful and kind of detrimental to the people of color in the group. But I'd also wonder, so what would be your personal advice to people listening of how to get over that, I guess. Cause I also see the only, the only part I, I do kind of understand is when people are like, well, I don't want to say the wrong thing, not necessarily shame and stuff, but yeah. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I agree. Like some, you know, I don't want people to jump in it too quickly. Like you said, it's not easy. So I don't want people to say something really, really stupid or insensitive and just be like, Oh, who cares? Like I'm <laughs> learning. Do you yeah. have advice on people that might be in this, in this situation where they're like, well, they're not, you know, they're, not harping too much on shame, but they genuinely don't know what to say. Like, what what would you say to someone in that situation? I know. I think that people don't want to cause like further damage once they once right. the switch, you know, once the switch flips on in their head, they're like, "Oh my gosh, okay." I completely realize I'm starting to really realize how bad this is, how ignorant I was. And the, and the, and your instinct is like, when you find out that you mess something up or that you're connected to something bad, you don't want to make it worse. That's like an instinct, I think for people. So a lot of people are frozen and paralyzed and they don't say anything um, out of fear. But I think the best thing we can do is follow along with certain people and get educated about what are they asking us? Not, not go up to people and say, what do you need me to do? Because I know that that's exhausting yes. too. What do you want me to say? What's the right thing? So instead of doing that, because I know you're not supposed to do that. And my black friends have been very clear when they share things. Um, please don't exhaust me further. Oh, sorry. It just froze. You're back. Well, you're back for I'm me. I'm waiting for it. Okay. I'm back. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. I, it has been made very clear that a white person is not to go 
to a person of color, any person of color and be like, so what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? Instead, why don't we go and pay for the education, like the Hill Roundtable stuff that I did, that was, you could pay for a ticket to that and stuff, pay for the education or follow people on social media who are doing that racial injustice work and, and see what they're saying. Cause it's out there. People are making yeah. clear what they need done. Yeah. And a lot of it, a lot of it is not this big grand, like, all right, donate $10,000. A lot of it is like, teach your kids better. If you see something happening in a grocery store or somewhere public, mm -hmm. you know, do something, speak up, record something, just like doing the right thing in so many settings is the, is the way to make the difference or voting a certain way or talking to a congressman. I mean, it's being made clear. Yeah. We just have to know where to look. Yeah. Yeah. I agree 100% with all of that. Um, something recently I said to a friend who's black, so we were just talking about navigating that dynamic of being asked constantly what, you know, by well-meaning people often, what do you want me to do? Or what, what can I do to yeah. be a better ally and stuff? Which is a great question. It's not always frustrating to hear. Um, timing can be everything with that. So I agree. Like yeah. a lot of times I do want people to ask. Um, but yeah, you're right. Tread that, toe that line carefully with just, you know, flocking to all your black friends or Asian friends, Hispanic friends, just to ask, you know, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I'll do anything type thing. Um, but something that's been helpful for yeah. me is... Tell me, tell me. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> answering the question, almost what are you willing to do? Because I think a lot of times, that, that would be my answer a lot of times now, is because a lot of times I will... It's exhausting because I will tell people what I think they should do, and then there's deer in the headlights or crickets. And it's like, well, right. you don't ask oh, them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Don't ask if you don't want to do that. Like that's or right. And then a lot of times, the, I think the tiresome thing is when a poor version of that advice is done. Like they'll do like half of it or less yeah. than that. And I'm like, well, that's that was worse than doing nothing because you just okay. listened and then didn't what do what I said. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. So I think that's where maybe I won't speak for everybody, but where the uh, exhausting component comes. That that's where it comes for for me. Yeah, I don't blame you. All right. This is where I know you could probably talk for hours right here. So, and you've mentioned your beautiful family of three beautiful daughters. They are firecrackers. If, if anyone follows you on social media listening to this, which I know some people do, what, what's some advice on these conversations you're having with your girls growing up and just how you communicate with Mike, like you are legitimately raising three little advocates. So yeah, advice on and how you and Mike communicate with your girls about being advocates for the BIPOC community. Yeah, I, I know that you got a ton to say about this. Um, so a good, a good, if you want to sit down, if anybody ever wants to sit down and watch the talk that we did with Adrian and Josh, it's in my IGTV, how to raise anti-racist kids. Um, we, that was a great one. Um, it was great because we, talked about how to have hard conversations with little kids. And, you know, she's black, I'm white. She's talking about how hard it is to talk to her black kids mm -hmm. about the reality of the world. And I'm sitting here, like, how do I talk to my white kids about sticking up for and protecting the black kids who live in this horrible reality? Um, it was really wonderful. Um, it's hard. It's a hard conversation because anything connected to kids, you know, as a dad, anything connected to kids is instantly like, your sensitivity is so heightened. Yeah. Um, thinking about their feelings, thinking about 
how this is going to change their little innocent worldview. Um, we have always known we are raising adults. So <laughs> our kids are a little, probably a little more grown than they need to be. Very spicy, very sassy. Uh, they have they have political opinions at this point. It's hilarious. Yeah, Cammy seems and, like she's like fifteen. <laughs> yeah, she does. She does. The, the I've got stuff saved. I have a highlight also that I think people would enjoy. A highlight um, about anti racism on my or anti racist kids. It's in that same highlight. Okay. And it's these conversations with Cammy where she's like, I don't get how people don't get this. It's mm. so simple for kids. I don't get it. Mommy, I don't I don't understand how people don't understand that this is wrong. I mean, just so uh for, for lack of a better term, or maybe it's perfect term, it's so black and white to her. It's mm-hmm. so black and white. This is wrong. How would you not think it's wrong? Um, we're very honest with our kids. They're five, seven, and nine. They understand um they understand things that people probably don't talk about their talk about to their kids until they're teenagers. But we're doing that because if my child sees any any non-white child being bullied or made fun of or any slant or um, mm-hmm. what's the worst, any slurs used, anything, they I my kids are going to stick up for them. And I, I, I don't care if they get into Harvard. I don't care if they uh, go to the moon. The most important thing in this house is that we raise anti-racist kids, anti-race, mm-hmm. you know. There's nothing more important to us. Um, so we're clear. We're very clear with our kids. And we keep the, the the bottom line. Like I was telling you earlier, we keep the bottom line simple. It's yeah. racism is wrong. Any degree of racism is wrong. Any No jokes are okay. None of it's okay. Mm. Um, dealing with racists is the hard part. The, yeah. Being anti-racist is easy. should be completely natural to our family. Dealing with racists is going to be the hard part but we have to do it. It's our, it's literally, God, isn't it the least we can do mm. after everything that's gone on? It's the very, very least that we can do. We owe this. We owe this for hundreds of years back and it's mm. the, the easiest on. thing that we can do. Come on. Amen. That man, that Mark, <laughs> uh, that's the mark of some fruit. That's man. That's so hopeful. And they that, get it. Yeah. They that your kids it. have the thought of, why wouldn't somebody understand this is just, I mean, that's the market change. I, I want that. Yeah. I want that for my kids and their friends. It wasn't like that when I was a, a kid. Yes. It wasn't like that when I was a kid. I was raised completely different. Mm-hmm. It, us versus them. And not necessarily always black versus white, but a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And like, God, thank you, God, for letting me hear the things that I heard mm-hmm. and still turn out like this. I think that all the time. Like, yes, that's all God. Because if I continued the way that my family was, I'd be a little racist right now. Mm-hmm. And that's not okay. <laughs> all right. This has been, this has been awesome, Amanda. Oh yeah. Thank you. Um, I want to give you some time here too. You've mentioned some, I mean, resources, I mean, that you've been a part of, you mentioned Brene Brown. Um, want to give you some time to, do you have any other recommendations, some things that have been instrumental in helping shape your view of racism and how to be an advocate and just, or even just understanding in general things that have been helpful? Well, you know, originally Brene Brown was helpful for the shame and vulnerability part because 
being an anti-racist requires vulnerability. I mean, every, th- every time I make a post, I, that, that's exp- exposure. Anytime that we post something or we put our beliefs or our thoughts out there. So that helped for that originally. Now the cool thing about Brené Brown is she's collaborated with, I think, Austin Channing Brown. She's collaborating with lots mm-hmm. of, and podcasting with a lot of uh, people of color to be, have these really good, honest conversations. I can't think of a better white woman to have these conversations yeah. than a shame and vulnerability researcher. So she's gone from just that to like all the, it was wonderful, wonderful. Um, Privilege to Progress is a really good. Um, yeah, they're great. Yeah, they're great. Very, very clear. They're very clear and to the point. And I, I really appreciate how well they um, educate people. Um, and my, my friend Shante Grant, um, Shante Grant is, I, I met her at a Cultivate What Matters photo shoot years ago. And she, she teaches women how to get into routine and, um, just live like their best life. But she has done a lot of great anti-racist education and she's very honest about it all the time on her. She's a black woman. Oh my God. I love her so much. Uh, she's wonderful too. She's one of my favorites. So I got to plug her. Yeah. Awesome. Any shows or movies? that you've been watching lately, especially if they're um, family, family appropriate. doesn't have to be. But we I, love, well, the, di, if you have Disney, the Ruby yes. Bridges movie is on there and oh, I'm okay. willing to bet it's, oh my gosh, it is so good. And the girls, the other day, the girls, oh, it was, I think it was like Father's Day. I can't remember. Okay. Well, they just wanted to watch it. They just, oh no, they, it was Juneteenth. <laughs> it was so ironic because okay. um, we were hanging okay. out and um, Cameron, was like, today's Juneteenth. And I was like, yeah, no, we were talking about it and talking about what it meant. And then we were just sitting in bed and she turned on the Ruby Bridges movie. It's on Disney. Um, I'm willing to bet that a lot of parents with that movie don't want to watch it because it's uncomfortable, hmm. et cetera. It also has the N-word in it because it's a very honest depiction. But it is a it is a family movie. And that is important. I that My kids know all about that. Um, and that is a really, really good movie because... They connect. It's a child. She's six years old. So children make that yeah. connection to her. And I can't think of, I mean, my kids need to see that and be exposed to that to know how important the work they're doing is, you know? Yeah. So th- that is just one of our favorites. It's really good. I I will check that out. I feel like Disney plus subscription has come up every single episode. Yeah, it's really yeah. good. But seriously, <laughs> yeah, it. we'll have to check that movie out. I mean, I'll, I actually... I have to confess, I didn't know the story of Ruby Bridges until the last, like, six months. Isn't and it incredible? Caitlin just brought it up casually because I think something was on social media about it, and she just assumed I knew. I was like, oh, look at this. It's been this long since Ruby Bridges. And I was like, who is that? So, uh, <laughs> and then when she told me, I was like, I, wow. I got nothing. I got cool. no idea why. <laughs> Well, and my dad is, it's so funny. My dad is older than Ruby Bridges. Um, and if you think about, that's just crazy. We're like, we think, we just think that that was not that long ago. The Outer Banks actually just hosted Ruby Bridges um, in a really nice house in Duck. And she oh. made, um, she like cooked and did a, like a live Zoom call to talk about her journey, you know, as this child being integrated into the white school and, it was crazy. Um, we watched the whole thing. She made, um, what is it? Uh, gumbo? Is that what they make in Louisiana? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
she was cooking that and they talk about that in the ruby bridges movie you know that's like the food that they're cooking in it and it was so cool my kid ellie and cameron they're seven and nine and they sat at at night and watched that whole zoom call with me from start to finish they loved every second of it it's not a cartoon you know but they were like that's the real her so yeah oh incredible oh gosh oh she what an amazing story wow yeah that's amazing your kids are awesome well, this flew by. I, wish, I could do this for another couple hours. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I'm used to recording at night, so this is great. I'm up and I'm going. You're done for the day. Yeah. I know. I know you're an a early riser, so even when I reached out and you know we settled on nine, I was like, wow, I mean, I probably could have done like seven and she would have been good to go. I was up at like 5.45 oh, this morning. Oh, goodness. It's just so, it's so nice here by the ocean. You oh, know, yeah. and, I don't blame and you. And the sunrise over there. It's, it's so nice. But then, but then I'm like potato by 7 p.m. I just literally lay there like, I'm not getting up. I'm not doing anything. I'm done. I'm yeah, done. Yeah. <laughs> it's understandable. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, yeah, I know that everyone's going to benefit a lot from your words of wisdom as an advocate. And really, first and foremost, thank you so much for your consistent outspokenness and advocacy for people of color and just, yeah, you as an ally. Um, I'll speak for myself, but I know many would agree and extremely thankful um, for your voice out there. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you have a good day, even though you've been up for for hours already. The rest of us will have a good rest of our rest of our nine to five day. Perfect. That sounds (laughs) great. All right. Thank you. This podcast was created to elevate the voices of the BIPOC community as well as our allies and to invite anyone else to listen in, learn, and grow with us. As always, don't forget to check out the show notes for all of the links to the recommendations we mentioned throughout the episode. Our artwork was created by the great Ashley Bush, and the music you're listening to was created by the also great Dylan Dent.